This episode is brought to you by Dan Peck of Caliber Home Loans. If you're an experienced investor, you'll know just how important it is to have a lender who knows how to work with investors. Now, we've been working with Dan and his team for over five years now, and he's our go-to whenever we need a residential loan for our investment properties. Now, if you're new to investing, you might not know this, but your lender can sometimes be the difference between getting a great deal or completely missing out on it because your lender couldn't close a deal. Now, I did want to point out that Dan can help you not only with your investment properties, but also if you're looking to buy a primary residence or a vacation home. So the next time you're looking for a residential lender, be sure to email Dan at semiretiredmd at caliberhomeloans.com to get a free consultation. This episode is sponsored by our brand new course called Fast Fire Bookkeeping for Real Estate Investors. Do you have a pile of receipts and a bunch of statements that are stacking up in your office and the pile isn't getting any smaller? Are your rental properties getting you closer to financial freedom? Do you even know how your properties are performing? Well, the answer to your problem is doing your books the right way, and that's what our course is about. We'll teach you how to set up your books the right way, not just for tax time, but also so you can unlock the insights that will help you maximize your cash flow. For more information or to sign up, go to semiretiredmd.com forward slash bookkeeping. Welcome to the Doctors Building Wealth Podcast, the place where we talk about the strategies, habits, and mindset that separate wealthy docs from those who are not. We're your hosts, Leiti and Kenji. Today, we're really fortunate to have Chet Severson here from Curated Accounting, and we're going to talk about a topic that I think will interest a lot of our listeners. Yeah, we're going to be talking about how to shelter active income, so W-2 income and 1099 income using real estate, and not just talking only about real estate professional, we're going to be talking about some other methods. So Chet, let's just dive in and maybe kind of start right away talking about real estate and how to shelter income, active income. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Real estate is one of my favorite topics, and this is one of my favorite things because... uh, you know, early in my career, you'd hear a lot of people would come to me and say, well, I'm just a W-2 employee. And so there's mm-hmm. there's nothing I can do. Sorry. It's like, I don't have anything interesting. And then fast forward, you know, a decade later in my career, and it's like, no, there's actually a lot you can do. Let's talk about real estate. And so, yeah, with real estate, um, you know, a lot of people hear about rep status. And so that's kind of the, the golden ticket, if you will, of <laughs> real estate. But a lot of people don't know that there's there's other ways that you can offset your W-2 income. There's actually a lot of other ways. Um, you can do short-term rentals. You can uh, buy your own office building. You can rehab properties. A bunch of different things along the way that, that people have opportunities to, especially those high-income earners, those people who are just getting uh, clobbered in income taxes every single year. There's a lot that they can do to basically actively look at real estate as a way to kind of shelter that income and yeah, find tax-deferred deferred, uh, strategies and savings. Yeah, I think one of the things that people get uh, stuck in is that they go, well, they've heard of real estate professional status, but I don't think that they realize that there are a lot of other ways without real estate professional status that you can actually shelter income. So, but let's, let's, before we dive into those, let's kind of talk about real estate professional status uh, real briefly, because, you know, obviously it's a, it's, it's a great way to uh, shelter your income, but there are a lot of requirements to, you know, that you have to meet in order to get that, that status. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what those criteria are? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the big, there's two rules. It's an and thing, so you got to add both of them. It's basically 750 hours and 50% of your time uh, in hours in which you materially participate. And so basically the IRS set, set up to be to be, you're actively doing this, you know, 50% of your time is you're, you're serious about this. That's, you know, 750 hours, you break that down. That's 15 hours or, or more a week at least. And so you're, you're heavily invested in real estate. You're doing this, you're treating it as a business. That's how they set up those rules at that particular time. That becomes very fruitful. If you are a real estate person, because now, if you're creating losses from real estate, as most real estate investments do create losses, uh, taxable losses, even if they're cash flow positive, you can use that to offset your, your W-2 income. And so it can be great in certain situations if it makes sense for people. Yeah. And that's offsetting the active income. So for example, how Kenji and I have traditionally used it is we create a lot of losses on our real estate side. We shelter my medical income and now we actually shelter our blog income too. So yeah. So it's sheltering active income. Now we also in, in previous podcasts have covered if you don't have real estate professional, that there's a lot of ways to create passive losses through your real estate empire and use that to shelter other passive income. But Specifically, we want to talk about today, if you don't have real estate professional, how you shelter active income. So you mentioned a couple options. Yes. Maybe let's dive into short-term rentals first. Yeah. Yeah. Short-term rentals have become more and more popular. And so people talk about this as if it's like this brand new thing. It's been around for a really long time. What's made it popular is Airbnb, VRBO, these new business types, which are making short-term rentals more accessible. And so the reason that it's different is because the IRS treats this like a hotel. And so it's more of a a business. People are coming in and out. There's maid service, stuff like that. It's less of a long-term rental. It's actually not even treated as a long-term rental at all. It's not treated towards rep status or anything like that. The nice thing there is you just have to materially participate. You don't have to hit those big 750 hours, 50% of my time. There's a lot lower bar to being able to do that. And so it's great because this is a great way for people who are like looking at the rep status and they're saying to themselves, there's no way I'm ever going to hit this. I'm, I can't go 50% of my time, or at least not for the foreseeable future. Hey, here's an opportunity for you to get into real estate, get a quick win in terms of a very big tax savings opportunity. And you have to materially participate. You have to do something. You can't. You can't just be completely passive, but you could just materially participate for one year or or the first couple of months. And so a lot of my clients were talking about, hey, here's a great way for you to get into real estate, offset or shelter your W-2 income. We can use this as part of your overall tax strategy. So let's talk about what that looks like in in reality, right? Because I want to I want to you know, teach through an example. So can you give us an example of how somebody might buy a property, materially participate, meet those rules and be able to write off, you know, the depreciation, the bonus depreciation and all those expenses, you know, whether or not they rehab or they buy furniture or whatever that first year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that first year is great. Um, I was just talking to a client yesterday. She's in Austin, Texas, a pretty um, you know touristy place. A lot of people travel there for that reason. So very Airbnb friendly. And so looking at a property, five hundred thousand dollar property. Normally, rule of thumb we say is year one, twenty to twenty five percent of that property potentially could qualify as 
what we would call bonus depreciation, aka a write-off. And so I'm looking at 100 grand, 125, $150,000 of that purchase price that I maybe can write off this year against my W-2 income. And so what we talked about was, hey, you got to materially participate. And so you got to be doing something. And so at a minimum, you have to do 100 hours and more than anyone else. And so if I got a property manager, they do 200 hours, I got to do 201 hours. Or if I can do 500 hours in short-term rentals, then I materially participate, even if I have other people. And so when we talk about short-term rentals, a lot of my clients, I'm saying, hey, 500 hours, that's about 10 hours per week. What we could do is we could get you two or three short-term rental properties. Now you got to do about two or three hours per week. That's a lot more digestible for a lot of people. And so, hey, I could bring in cleaners. I could bring in property managers. I can actively manage them, do other things to get to 500 hours. And now I've got this great, great opportunity to offset or shelter my W-2 income through these short-term rentals. Now, when you say more than anyone else, um, so that would be more than a cleaner, yep. uh, more, more than a contractor who's rehabbing the property? More than a contractor, yep. And so okay. for a lot of my clients, if it's like, well, Chet, I don't want to I don't want to manage properties. It's like, well, here's a strategy. Let's build in the rehab into the cost of the, of the building. And so, hey, if I know that it's 600 grand, but I got to put 50,000 into it, I'll pay you 650 so that when I take ownership of the property, that rehab's already done. So now I don't have to worry about the contractor's time. So now that I step into the shoes of ownership, if I'm managing the property, sending the tenants the codes to get into the building and managing repairs and stuff like that along the way, even if there's a cleaner, as long as I can do more than that person, now I've materially participated in that property. Yeah, I think um, one possible strategy is maybe not buying the property in like January and February and having to manage it that whole year, but yep. buying it kind of later in the year, self-managing it for several months, making yep. sure that the stays are less than seven days, right? That's really, really important because if you want it to be a short-term rental, those stays need to average out less than seven days. So you can't go and get somebody who's going to stay two months, right? Because yep. then at that point, it's a long-term rental. Yep. And then doing that self-management, doing more than anyone else, making sure you have the hundred hours, but then handing it over to a property manager the next year, if you only have one property, right. Or the next totally. year, or the next year you go buy three more short-term rentals and all of a sudden you can do the 500 hours. Right. Yep. Yep. Great, great strategy. We talk end of year strategy all the time with people. We keep talk, talking to people in June, July, and they're like, Hey, what can I do? Hey, here's an opportunity for you to control that. It's easier to control a period of time rather than an entire year. I've got to manage this property and do more than anybody else. If they're looking towards the end of the year, it's like, well, I could get to hundred hours and I could do more than, than the other people. I could control that. It gives you a lot more flexibility. Yeah. And setting up a short-term rental is no joke. It definitely takes a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Tons and tons of hours. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Now let's talk about uh, another category. Like we, you, you had mentioned, uh, you know, medical office buildings. Can you talk about, you know, especially a lot of our listeners are physicians. Of course, they're non-physicians as well, but you know, they're all high income. They're all professionals. Uh, they work in different office settings. Uh, but let's talk about an example of a physician who has their own medical practice. Can you talk to us about how you can kind of shelter some of that medical practice income you, with a medical office building? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this grouping election is almost always talked about with, with long-term rentals. And so people hear about it. This grouping election is the idea that if if we've got something that's kind of a, an appropriate, what we call economic unit, being that it's basically like it functions together, being an office building and then the practice within it, we can group those activities together. 
And so when a lot of people, family practice and stuff like that, people who, you know, dentists and stuff like that, that are going to obviously be in a building working for themselves, a lot of these people, what they can do is that they're looking to get into real estate, build wealth in that particular way. I'm sick of paying rent. It's expensive. And I'm, I'm tired of that. I want to build some equity. Not only can I build some equity, invest in real estate, but I also can group that property with my business. I don't have to own it together. So I don't have to worry about all the risk mitigation and stuff like that, but I can group those activities together. And now I can use all of those advanced depreciation strategies and stuff like that on that office building. And so similar situation, I have to materially participate, but I don't have to hit reps in order to to group that together and take advantage of that. Is material participation then the same? It's 100 hours? Yep. Yep. 100 hours and more than anyone else or or substantially all is another one. There's seven different thresholds, but these are the main ones that people talk about. And so if I'm doing everything, if I'm the one that's managing everything within my property, that counts 100 hours more than anyone else or 500 hours. And so all of those activities would count. So talk to me about if you have a medical office where you occupy, let's say, 51% of the space, and then yeah. you're leasing out 49%. Can you talk about the difference between the hours you spend on the 51% versus the 49% uh, and managing tenants? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in terms of the ability to group group everything together, I'm only going to be able to group what, what I'm occupying. That's the appropriate economic unit. But in terms of the hours to manage the building, it's all of the building. It's not only managing my own practice, you know, collecting rent from myself, as silly as that may seem, left pocket to right pocket, but also managing the other tenants within the building and the other space. And so if I'm thinking about it as I'm going to occupy part of the space and, you know, rent it out to somebody else, there's going to be some time, actual real time invested in renting that out to those other people, managing them in that particular space. And so it's a great way for people to uh, get to that material participation hours. It does limit their ability to, to take those bonus depreciation. You know, if I'm only doing 50% of the space, I can't necessarily take 100% of the of the bonus depreciation and all of that. But that being said, I still can get a really big, big win in particular. So I want to make sure I understand. So let's say, for example, you, you occupy 100% of your building mm-hmm. and you're doing your 100 hours and more than anybody else in, in taking care of that building, right? It's not yep. really on time spent in your practice, working in your practice. Yep. All of a sudden that allows you to take active losses on 100% of your building, right? For depreciation, any rehab you're doing in it, yep. all of that. Okay. And, exactly. And, but if you own, let's say 51% of your building, and again, you're meeting that 100 hours, you're going to be able to write off you know, 51% of the depreciation. But those other 49% that you're spending time managing on, those are actually separate hours that you could count towards real estate professional if you owned a couple other properties. Exactly. Yep. That's exactly right. Yep. So it can be a great way for people to kind of start thinking about like, I want to do residential, I want to do multi-units, but I also could own my own practice. Here's a great way for you to kind of start to get towards that reps, that golden ticket situation of getting to reps. Uh, So interestingly enough, we actually um, had a student ask us this question the other day. So I think they're actually buying a property that has a medical office that they're going to occupy. They have a couple other offices that they're going to that they're going to rent out. And then they're planning on building, I think it was like 20 something units, apartment units above the building. Right. So it's a two level one. You know, So it seems like in that case, that person would, you know, be able to actually get a ton of hours for a real estate professional and probably meet that criteria if they're doing a lot of the work um, and write off everything. 
Yep. That's exactly right. Yep. Yep. So they, if anything, they've got a great situation where they've got, if I can't get to reps quite at reps hours on all of it, okay. I still can get some sort of a win in terms of tax savings. If I can get to reps even better, I can now take, take the full, full value and really, really sink into the, the benefits. Awesome. Awesome. That's great. So yeah. So we've talked about short-term rentals. We talked about, you know, office buildings and just more specifically, we've been talking about medical office, but uh, are there any other types of kind of real estate uh, where you might be able to kind of create a similar situation like you can with short-term rentals or office buildings? Yeah. 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 I think the other one that I think a lot of people miss is rehabs. And so this one gets, gets missed consistently with the idea of people are like, well, I have to hit reps in order to take any kind of benefit. No, that's not the case. Uh, there's something called this partial disposition election, which is you've partially disposed of part of the building. And so example, a uh, good example is I buy a $300,000 building, but this thing needs a lot of work. I'm going to rip off the roof. I'm going to take out the floors. I'm going to take out major components. I got to put all new electrical in. When I'm taking off those major components and putting on new stuff, I have to depreciate the new stuff in most cases. The old stuff that's gone, part of my original $300,000 price, I get to write that off. And that write-off can be used to offset my W-2 income via this partial disposition election. Yeah. So Chet, in practice, a lot of people, let's say, will put off doing a cost segregation study, you know, because it costs money until they know that they're going to get real estate professional and be able to qualify that for that and then be able to take that as an active loss. But it sounds like for somebody who's buying a building that needs a ton of work, even if they're not going to meet real estate professional that year, it may be actually worth doing a cost segregation study before they do the work to kind of analyze all the different things they're going to throw out and make sure they can take that as an active loss. I couldn't have said it better myself. That's exactly, that's exactly right. Yeah. Is you basically, that's the cost segregation studies. It's saying of my purchase price, it's giving me an inventory of every little individual component of this building, land, et cetera. And what's nice about that is if I go to do that, that big rehab and I'm ripping all this stuff off, now I have a dollar value assigned to every single thing. So it's going to say the roof was 15 grand. Okay. $15,000 loss. And as I replace each one of these, I now have my inventory of stuff that says, you know, each one of those that I go replace, I can claim a loss as I get rid of it and put something new in. So for students who are thinking about, you know, whether or not this is worth it, it seems like getting a free estimate from a cost segregation study would would really give you kind of a sense of what you're going to be able to write off even before you go and do the rehab. Exactly right. Yep. Always get a free estimate from them and then review that with your CPA. Uh, most cost segregation companies are really good, but you do want to look at the underlying assumptions that they've made. And so how did they value land? Was that appropriate? What type of tax rates are they assuming? Are you really at that tax rate so that you're, when you're looking at the cost benefit analysis, you know that, it, that it's accurate and that there's not some broad assumptions that are somehow would change your, your decision. This episode is brought to you by Keystone CPA. Are you tired of losing your hard-earned money to taxes each and every year? The truth is that tax savings is not just for the super wealthy. As a real estate investor, you too can take advantage of all the tax saving strategies that are available to help you protect your hard-earned money. Top selling authors and tax strategists, Amanda Hahn and Matt McFarland specialized in tax saving strategies, especially for real estate investors. Be sure to check out their website by going to www.keystonecpa.com, that's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-C-P-A.com to work with Amanda and Matt and make sure to download the free ebook that is available on their homepage. Did you know 1031s are an unregulated industry? That's why financial security is the most important part of a 1031 exchange. We recommend the best in them business. 
Kyle Williams of IPX 1031, a subsidiary of Fidelity National Financial. As the largest 1031 qualified intermediary in the country, they not only offer superior protections, but extremely competitive rates. Give Kyle a call to learn more at 425-582-3487. That's 425-582-3487. Yeah, and then in terms of the timing of the cost segregation study, um, I've also heard that it, it doesn't really matter when you do the study. Well, it does matter in the sense that you know you can actually do the study right when you buy the property. But the question that people always have is like, you know, do you, does that mean that you have to use the bonus depreciation just because you did the study, or can you use the bonus depreciation at a later time when you qualify for real estate professional status? You absolutely can use it at a later time. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, it's a change in accounting method. And so it's a change in the decision that I've made to how I'm going to depreciate this property. And so it's not, I can have that that data available. I don't have to choose to use that. I'm later choosing to say, now I want to use this method and use bonus depreciation and all of that. Yeah, so it seems like a lot of cases you might actually do the study and then take that data, take it back to your CPA and say, okay, well, what's the most advantageous for me? I know I'm going to get reps next year. Should I use it this year? Should I use it next year? And your yep. CPA really is a strategist in helping you plan according to you know what, what your tax strategy is and, and where you're going to be in a year. This is why it's so, so important that you know not everything that works for one person works for the other, right? And you have to have your CPA involved from the very beginning, even before you start ripping out walls. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it kills me every once in a while. I'll see somebody who comes to me. They did a cost segregation study. They created this massive passive activity loss because they had all this bonus depreciation and they didn't get to use any of it. And now they create a situation where there's not much we can do relative to that situation in order to, to get them the benefit that they should have gotten had they have waited or worked with a CPA to strategize with the timing of that and how to use that. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, working from the beginning, it's, it's so important. You know, I consider myself an extension of people's team and it's true. It's, it's what I enjoy. I enjoy doing it. And so uh, I want to be there from the beginning so that I can help you avoid stepping on your own feet along the, along the way. Yeah, and we do too. Yeah, we we consider your CPA, your accountant, your, an integral member of your team, especially if you're looking to kind of take advantage of of these uh, tax savings or tax strategies. So you had kind of mentioned uh, these uh, passive losses, you know, and somebody you know in this situation where they did a cost segregation study and had you know claimed the bonus depreciation, created this massive loss, uh, or even the person who doesn't claim reps for years. You know, We know somebody who accumulated a million dollars worth of passive losses over the years because they could never use it. But can you talk to us about how you can unlock those, well, what they're called suspended passive losses, how you can unlock those and use them to shelter active income? Yep. Yeah. Good question. It's when you dispose of the property. And so, uh, you know, I was just talking to somebody yesterday who has a hundred grand in passive losses, kind of dead equity in the property. We were looking at their cash on cash return on investment. It wasn't great. And so we were talking about, Hey, you're not making a great rate of return on this property. Let's consider 1031 exchange, some other things to, to flip this equity into something that's more lucrative. Or what we can do is let's take a look at these passive losses and see how much are they. If we dispose of this property, you know, in their case, they had almost no gain on the property, but they've got all of these losses from previous years, we could dispose of this property, free up that $100,000 in losses, offset your W-2 income, and then get a massive tax refund for you. Take that equity and let's go invest in something else. 
So this is, I think, one of the first times I've ever heard that you could use those suspended passive losses to actually shelter your active income. So let's let's talk about that. I mean, that's really yes. it's really interesting and because of the because of that, so many people, I'll be like, when I'm talking deductions to people, I'm like, you have to maximize, you know, maximize your deductions, get every single deduction we possibly can. And some people will will come to me and say, well, Chet, I'm already after depreciation, I'm already at a loss. I'm not going to get to use it anyways. Uh, so what's the point? The point is, is that these losses are going to carry forward. You will eventually get to use them, either if we dispose of this property or you know, fast forward 20 years from now, depreciation is going to run out eventually. You know, this property is going to go up, rents are going to go up. And so I see some of my long-term investors, people who started 30 years ago, all of their properties, even after depreciation, if it still exists, are, are still running taxable profits. However, they also have all of these massive passive activity losses they've been carrying over for 20, 30 years that now are freed up to start offsetting their active income. And so uh, that's why it's so important to take advantage of every single deduction, home office deduction, auto deductions, travel, looking at all of those other things that people miss because they're thinking, well, I've got the natural stuff, mortgage interests and all of that, taxes, but uh, that other stuff, I don't really need it. We do. You want to eventually use that stuff. So maximize that passive activity loss. And then the other thing to consider is with those passive activity losses is the grouping election is when people start looking at, you know, hey, Chet, I've got, I've got my 750 hours, I got 50% of my time, and I've got all these properties. Well, it could be that property A that we've owned for a really long time has this massive passive activity loss. Let's think about how that works into your overall plan. Because it may be that that property, we want to use those passive activity losses. So it might not be smart for us to group that property with all of these others, because now I've got to dispose of all of these properties to free up that loss. And so usually working with clients to identify, hey, how is this going to factor into your overall plan? And what is it that we want to do both short-term and long-term? Yeah, we've heard the grouping election now twice in this episode. So definitely pay attention to that grouping election because that's really, really important. You might lock up those suspended passive losses uh, and you won't be able to free them up until you sell the entire group is my understanding. Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Wait, I want to reiterate all of this because there was a ton of information there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you own a property, you're taking as you're maximizing your passive losses year after year after year. If you're going to own it for, you know, 20, 30 years, you're going to start showing a profit at some point. And so you can use those losses in those years, even while you own the property without selling it to shelter that income down the road. Exactly. Right. Yep. Yep. A lot yep. of people miss that long-term thing. You know, we're looking at, hey, we're going to get to 10 doors in five years. We're going to get to reps and all that's great. We do want to do that. But that being said, we also want to maximize those losses. If we've got passive activity losses during those non-reps years, let's maximize those because eventually we'll get to use them. And the alternative is, let's say you sell it. And at that point, you can take those suspended passive losses and actually use them to shelter active income. Yes. Yep, absolutely. Can you use that to shelter capital gains as well? Yeah, good question. Yep, absolutely. And so that would be something we we would decide, do we want to use it to to shelter capital gains, knowing that that's at a lower tax rate? And so that could be a planning opportunity where we're saying, hey, Chet, I've had a massive stock event. I've got like a million dollars in sales. I freed up to go invest in real estate. Well, do we want to use it this year or do we want to use it next year when we're going to hit ordinary income rates at 37%. So we'd be talking about how do we want to, how do we want to use that loss? 
Mm, okay, yeah, that's great. Yeah, because we have a friend who has a uh, you know inherited a whole bunch of stock from uh, her grandparents, and mm-hmm. so she was trying to figure out how can she you know liquidate it and actually invest that into real estate. But she was yep. worried about all the gains, right? Because you know she had gotten it from her grandparents who are still alive. Got it. Got it. Okay. I was going to say if it was inherited yeah. and uh, I was going to immediately jump into step up and basis, but uh, right. yeah, they're they're still around. Yeah, she'd have she'd have some gains to consider. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Okay. So I want to talk about one more thing and that yeah. is about writing off cars and other costs. Um, right. Because this is something we really hadn't even done for the last couple, until the last couple of years. Um, and what we realized is very much like short-term rentals, there's a potential to, if you're just going to use one car that you're going to purchase to just, you know, drive to your rehab properties for that year, there's actually the opportunity to take hundred percent bonus depreciation on that. So can you talk yeah. about that as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. This one I love because uh, it's another big win that people can do. And so, you know, it's like, okay, I know I've got a ton of properties. I got to go look at these. Maybe they're in my local area or they're, they're two, two, three hours away. And so I'm going to have to drive to check on these properties. Okay. Well now my business use of my vehicle qualifies as a deduction. I know that business use of vehicle can also include depreciation or bonus depreciation. And so the one catch there is the IRS has this very weird arbitrary rule where the vehicle has to weigh more than 6,000 pounds. So they did this because people, when this first came out, there were these super light sports cars, really expensive. And so the IRS was like, well, well, we're going to stop that. And so they put in 6,000 pounds, but now, so most SUVs, stuff like that, bigger vehicles, that's what people are looking at. But if I buy a $50,000 vehicle, I use it 100% for for my real estate business and it's more than 6,000 pounds. Well, now I've got a $50,000 bonus depreciation deduction that I can use to offset my income. Yeah. And that's really, again, very, it's so important to have your CPA present right from the beginning to kind of think through this with you, right? Because if you have, let's say three or four short-term rentals, you're going to be driving to, you're probably going to want to keep another car for personal use that maybe that first year and make sure you're only using that vehicle that you're purchasing for your business for business reasons. And then the next year, potentially you could sell that personal car, right? Because at that point you've taken your hundred percent bonus depreciation, but this strategy, you have to think through with your CPA and understand the rules. Absolutely. Yeah. For some people it's like, oh, well, Chet, I can't, I can't go buy a $50,000 vehicle, not use it personally. Like that's just not going to work for my, me and my family. Well, okay. Let's talk November. Could you use it for two months? Could we use it predominantly for business? Because even if it's 80%, now 80% of that $50,000 vehicle, that's a $40,000 deduction. That, that may change the way that you decide how to purchase this vehicle or how to use this vehicle over that small period of time. And so similar to the short-term rental thing of like, I don't have to do it for the, you know, once I bonus appreciation is year by year analysis. And so once I've used it, for that year, I can flip it next year to a per- completely 100% personal use property. And that that's perfectly fine. It's as long as it was used predominantly for business 50% or more, I can use bonus depreciation in that year. Interesting. And can you talk about depreciation recapture though, right? Like let's talk, talk about the car. Let's talk about bonus depreciation on your rental property. Yeah. Yeah. I think depreciation recapture gets overly complex pretty quickly. I think a lot of people hear this and it's like, what, well, what, how does that work? Depreciation is I get to already write off my investment. It's basically, I get to now write it off now. And so, you know, if I bought a business car for 50 grand and depreciation wasn't a thing and I sold it for, for 60 grand, I'd have a $10,000 gain. 
And so depreciation is saying, I already wrote off the 50,000. So now if I sell the car, I don't have any basis in that asset. I already claimed all the deductions relative to that asset. And so now all of my proceeds in that scenario are, are taxable, taxable gains. And so that is something to consider is that's, that's the whole recapture. And so same thing with properties. I buy a $200,000 property. Uh, I write off a hundred thousand of depreciation. I sell it for 300 grand. And so some people are like, well, I bought it for 200, sold it for 300. That's a hundred thousand dollar loss. Well, no, you already wrote off a hundred thousand of your basis. So now you've got a $200,000 gain. So if I sell that car that you mentioned, uh, the $50,000 car, then you're saying that I'm, I'm going to have to, when I sell it, I'm going to have to pay taxes on the gain. Yep. That's exactly right. Yep. And what tax rate is that at? Yeah. 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 It's going to be ordinary income tax um, for, for a business use uh, vehicle. If it's depreciation recapture on buildings, that's, it's a weird, it's arbitrary. It's 25%. Can a 1031 the car into another car? <laughs> yeah, good question. It's a good question. You used to be able to do that. Uh, not anymore. Um, so it used to be that the people could do that, but yeah, not anymore. So that's where trade-ins get a little tricky. People are like, well, I'll just trade in. Well, no, that does trigger the, the game in that particular okay. case. Yeah. So the key here is, you know, all those write-offs that you're getting, all that sheltered income, you want to make sure you're not just spending it, right? You want to make sure that you're taking that money and making more money off of it because that, that, that dollar you get today turns into more money down the road. And so it's not such a big hit when you have to, you know, potentially pay taxes, you know, 10 years from now when you sell that car or five years from now when you sell that car. Whereas if you just take that money and spend it, well, all you've done is kick the can down the road, right? And not put yourself Absolutely. in a better position. Absolutely. Continuously reinvest those those big refunds and put it into new assets. They're going to, you know, take next year's tax racket down significantly. And so you can kind of create this wheel of you get that first investment, get that big windfall, get a big refund, use that to invest in my next asset and keep doing it and just can accumulate wealth along the way. Yeah, and I just want to point out for the listeners who don't know about this, with the depreciation recapture, yeah, you can, with a rental property, you can 1031 that into a bigger property and defer those gains to the future. So you're not you're not incurring that depreciation recapture when you sell that property if you use a 1031 exchange. Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah, I've got, uh, you know, every time we buy properties, we always expect them to do well. Uh, we, we go into it with that. But sometimes we make an investment that this it's not t- working out the way we thought it was. And so what's great about real estate is um, one other benefit is the flexibility. You know, I can't sell Google stock and go buy Apple without having to pay tax on the gains. I can sell this property, go buy this property and defer the gains that that I have built into that. So. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Well, we're at that part of the segment where uh, we always finish our interviews with two questions. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, our, our podcast is called Rich Doc Poor Doc. So our first question is, what is your definition of rich? Yeah. Yeah. I love this question. I feel like when I hear the word rich, it's really about flexibility and freedom for me. And so there's, uh, there's I think there's inherently a monetary aspect to that uh, for, for most people, but I think it's really that that's different for each person. And so being rich can be, can be very different value for each person. And for me, it's really about how do I have the flexibility and freedom to, to do the things I want to do, to buy the things that I want to buy? Have I accumulated wealth in that way to where I can make most of my day-to-day decisions on terms of purchasing the things I want, helping the people I want, taking care of my family without having to really consider what it's doing to my finances. I've got the money. I'm, I'm rich at that point. 
Nice, nice. That's awesome. All right. And then, uh, you know, having worked with, uh, I know you've worked with a lot of uh, people who have accumulated wealth. So uh, what is my uh, one mindset habit or strategy that you've seen that separates somebody who's rich from somebody who's poor? Yeah, 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 yeah. I stole this from uh, I stole this from Mark Cuban. As, uh, I was listening to a podcast and he talked about usually when people start out, it's those people that as they start to, you know, they get away from the I'm I'm just making enough to kind of uh, you know, pay the bills and I'm now in my wealth accumulation phase of life. I'm making way more than I'm spending. Those people that don't up-level their spending in those early years that take that extra money and invest it, those are the people that I tend to see accumulate wealth so much faster. And so for so many people, that's a big component of that is real estate. In fact, I don't know, I'd say 80 to 90% of the people that I know that are very wealthy own real estate. And that's a very big piece of how they've built their wealth. And so, you know, follow what the what the wealthy people are doing, follow their strategies. It's There's a reason that they're doing it that way. It's because of all the tax benefits that we've, we've talked about. Well, thank you so much, Chat, for being here. I think yeah. there are so many pearls in there. Yeah. For people who want to reach out to you, can you just give us a quick piece about curated accounting and how they can reach you? And we'll put it also in our podcast notes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you can always e- email me, chat at curatedaccounting.com. Uh, you can look at our website, curatedaccounting.com and, and book a book a time with me there. Um, yeah, we're a full service accounting firm. We, we specialize in working with high net worth individuals, invest, people investing in real estate, obviously, uh, and small business owners as well. And so uh, really uh, what, we, what we enjoy, what we're good at is most of the people that, that come to us have some sort of turning point in their life. They're investing in real estate. They're starting a new business. They're starting something new and they need help. They need financial guidance to figure out how is this going to impact me and how do I do this smart and strategically? And that's that's really what we're good at. We, we curated accounting, we curate financial solutions to figure out something that's going to work for you. And so don't put you in a box. It's not, hey, I'm this person with with this amount of assets. Therefore, here's the basic financial situation. It's listen to what you, what are your goals? What are your priorities? What are the things that matter to you? Uh, and from there, let's, let's, you know, form a partnership. Let's figure out how we're going to get you there. Yeah. And I love that you work with so many of our semi-retired MD <laughs> students and take really, really good care of them. And so, Thank yeah, you. people make sure you tell Chet that you heard him on this podcast and mm-hmm. and that you came uh, from semi-retired MD. So he, he knows you're part of that little community now that you're building over there. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Yeah. There's a, uh... Yeah, there's uh, quite, I'd say a hundred or so of your, your students mm-hmm. at, at least at this point I've worked with. So uh, it's been, it's been really fun. I, I love how, regardless of whether people are just getting started or they've got 10, 20, 50 properties, there's always something that I can find to talk to them about and find ways which we can strategize. And uh, it's been really, really fun being a part of their journey. So thank, thank you both for, uh, for trusting me and uh, for having me on today. Yeah, our students are so creative. I love that about yeah. them. Yeah. Love they, that. Once they oh. get into taxes, right, there's right. no stopping them. <laughs> yep. Some of the best strategies that I've come up with, truthfully, and this is the truth of most practitioners, come from people asking good questions. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's how do, how do I, what if I did this? And it's like, that's really brilliant. Uh, that, that's a really good strategy. I hadn't thought of it that way. And so um, sometimes students, they're asking creative questions is how we find, how practitioners find, hey, this could apply to everybody. That is brilliant. And so, uh, yeah, I love working with clients. Awesome. awesome. Thanks, Chet, for your right. time. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. The 
The Doctors Building Wealth podcast provides information only and does not provide any financial, legal, tax, medical, or psychological services or advice. You are responsible for your own financial, physical, mental, and emotional well-being, decisions, choices, actions, and results. You should contact a professional if you have any specific questions about your unique situation.